Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm going to keep it very quick because Kirsty is great and uh, please go and see her if you have the opportunity to do that somewhere, in particular the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Her show will be amazing, I am sure. Uh, speaking of plugs for shows, I am in Adelaide from Wednesday this week doing Four Nights of Illegal, Wednesday through Saturday, and then on Sunday night I am doing my improvised show, What You Talking About, Will. Thank you to everybody who came out to the Brunswick Picture House last night uh, when I'm recording this. To the fourth, uh, I thought it was going to be the final, possibly not the final. It turns out we might have an opportunity to do one more show there before they do their renovation. So uh, keep your ears peeled to the socials for announcements of that if you're in the Brunswick Heads or Queensland region and you want to come and see what you're talking about, Will. Okay, uh, Adelaide for five days and then, of course, I am in Melbourne for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival of two weeks doing Will Eagle at the Arts Centre. Twelve shows only. Last time to see the show in Melbourne. If you want to come out and see the show, if you've seen it before and you want to see what I've done to it, uh, please come out and see Will Eagle. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber to this podcast, there is a discount offer on the Patreon page. Uh, 25% off if you're a Patreon subscriber to come and see my show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So go onto the Patreon page and find out all about that offer. So you can join up to Patreon for as little as a US dollar per month and you can get a 25% discount off the show. Do the maths, but it probably works out just to sign up for that offer, if nothing else. Um, Okay, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? Hello, I am Kirsty Wiebeck. I am a Melbourne-based comedian and speaker and radio co-host and gardener and cat lover and beach walker. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> It'd be great if for the next like 70 minutes was you just listing off things that you do in your life. Coffee drinker, occasional tea drinker, milk drinker, not that much at night time, sleeper, walker, sitter. <laughs> with, with an increasingly bored voice as well. Like just, I'm not even enjoying it. Just like, oh. <laughs> Uh, let's start with comedy because, you know, anybody who listens to this show knows that it's my particular, you know, special area of interest. And I always love to know people's comedy stories when I have stand-up comedians on this show. So tell me a little bit, give us the previously unkirsty version of your stand-up you know, career. How did you come to stand-up comedy? How long have you been doing it for? Okay, I guess this is coming up to my eighth year and I started by doing a workshop uh, it was not actually affiliated with the comedy festival, but it ran around the same time of year. And I, I did this one-week workshop where we worked on a five-minute bit and then the aim was on the final night to perform and we were all to take ten people minimum to this performance on the final night and we were to present in a showcase our five-minute bit. And I did that. I did a five-minute spot of 
as you can imagine, some very subpar comedy because that's how it all begins. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hooked. <laughs> I got I got my two laughs in my five minute bit, my two polite laughs, and I was like, "All right, this is the job for me." It's amazing, isn't it, that those two, in retrospect, those two polite laughs at the time feel like an incredible amount of juice. Like that is, you're like, oh my God, I'm hilarious. Those two polite laughs feel amazing at the time. It's only when you look back on what it must have been like that you realise that your ears were attuned to a different audience reaction back then than they are now. (laughs) Yeah, I think it felt so huge back then because that tiny polite laughter broke up like two and a half minutes of stunned silence (laughs) (laughs) like the tension in the room was just like out of control by the time somebody just went ha 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 Uh, what made you want to do stand-up comedy because if you have gone and done a stand-up comedy course there must be some inkling in your mind that stand-up comedy is something that you want to try so what was it that made you want to try it yeah, it's it's always a very strange explanation. Even to myself, I think I I think I had a latent dream that was buried deep, deep down below, which stemmed from just a genuine love for making people laugh. And I'd had that my whole life. I'd always been the class clown. I always got just endless joy from making other people happy around me. And people used to always tell me I should be a stand-up comedian. And unlike most people strangely enough because I didn't watch a lot of stand-up comedy before I got into it but but strangely enough I had this innate awareness that being funny around your mates and being funny at the pub wasn't the same as being able to hold court on your own on a stage which is as you would well know that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize because <laughs> because <laughs> people always go oh, I I reckon I'd be great at your job yeah I, yeah that's I reckon that's easy yeah I'm the funny fella at the pub and uh, and I admire that confidence <laughs> but it's uh, it's often not the case and I but I did have an awareness that uh, my joy for making people laugh and my ability to do it when I was in a group of people wouldn't necessarily translate onto the stage and then it it sounds so cliche but I basically woke up one morning when I was I just turned 30 I'd just gone through a breakup in a relationship and it felt like it felt like the erasing of a slate and like I just woke up on this one day and I and I literally just went I'm going to have a go at stand up comedy and it it wasn't really something that I'd consciously thought of before other than just being you know aware that I I enjoyed making people laugh and uh, and, and right then on the spot, I, I remember I got out of bed, I got my laptop and I booked this course and I paid it in full and I had no idea how to begin. That's why I did the workshop and I was a bit sceptical as to whether or not you could actually teach comedy or if a workshop would be effective. But I knew my personality enough to know that it would give me some kind of a taste and at least a boot up the bum to explore other possibilities and that's exactly what it did because that was the catalyst and now it's my job 
<laughs> I, I mean, I love this so much for so many different reasons. Firstly, that you knew there was a difference between making your mates laugh at the pub and doing it on stage because a lot of people don't know that difference. They'll be like, look at that guy. He's hilarious. And I'm like, yeah, he's hilarious because he's mentioning that time that Davo shit himself at his 21st and everybody knows that Davo shit himself at his 21st. But when you're playing <laughs> A Thousand Strangers, they don't all know about Davo shitting himself at his 21st. You've got to be able to make them laugh without that sort of group knowledge that they have but then the yes. interesting thing about the course like your insight that perhaps you couldn't learn it but that it might be important to you to do it anyway get some fundamentals get your toe in the door and sort of get yourself going so what is it that you did learn at that course that was fundamentally you know a, a, a thing that you've taken with you through your comedy career probably oh what a tough question. Probably probably to have a go. Mm. I mean, at a really, really base level, like that's that would be the absolute <laughs> like baseline <laughs> of something you'd learn in any course. <laughs> I mean, it's not, a, it's not it. a huge recommendation. I'm glad we haven't named the course specifically because if the best thing that you can recommend is encourage me to have a go. I mean, admittedly, I could have done the same thing by going to an open mic night and not paying any money. Also, having a go. In fact, it's Scott Morrison's slogan about you'll get a go if you have a go. It's the basic... <laughs> But it's okay. You had a go, and I think that's pretty important. So, <laughs> it's, it's I, I got I got really caught out by that question because I feel like I feel like looking back. I, I feel like at the time, and even now in hindsight, like I don't feel like I got a lot out of that. That it said a lot about you the way you answered that because from the look on your face when I asked you that question, I could tell the answer was nothing. I got nothing out of that course that I couldn't have got anywhere else and nothing that I took with me but you paused and tried to think of a polite way to say I got nothing out of it I, d I deeply wanted to find a positive and my brain was just going ah uh. I, I, look I loved I loved the performance I loved the performance and as I, as I said at the beginning I've got I've got a DVD of it somewhere, and I I just I I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it ever. But I should I should do it at some stage. But I just remember coming off the stage feeling like a superhero, and maybe it's just because I survived and I didn't die. And actually, there you go. There's a great takeaway from it because I remember a comedian, a, a, a very experienced comedian, very early on when I was starting out, saying to me. And so simple. It's just a very simple thing to tell someone that can really, really help. No matter what happens up there, you won't die. And, I mean, that technically can't be guaranteed. But... <laughs> but, <laughs> but the odds are that we probably won't. <laughs> There's a small and, statistical probability that you might die, but it is unlikely. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly right. So, yeah, I remember coming off and being like, well, I did that. I got through that. It felt good. And I want to do that again. 
So, so how did. soon did you do it again? And what did that look like when you did it again outside the environment of this course and this performance? Because often with a course like this, what happens is that you do your course and then, like you say, you gather all your friends and family to come and watch it. It's quite a good night because everybody in the room is there with friends and family and they're quite supportive. It's often like people who come through the comedy competitions, Raw and these sort of things. You know, I used to host the national final of Raw, you know, a bunch of years in a row. And I would often say to, you know, these kids going, this won't make or break your career. It won't. Like, you know, but this will probably be the best show you do in the next five years. Because after yes. this, it's going to get real ordinary for a while. Like, you're not going to be playing in front of a thousand people who all want you to do well. Sometimes you're going to be pl playing in front of eight people and they're all other comedians who wish you dead so that they can get more spots on a lineup. So enjoy this moment right now. And so there's a friendliness to the experience you first had, at least in a way. It's a safe, safe space to do your first gig. What was the second gig like? Well, I'm glad you've asked this because it's actually it's it's quite it's quite a funny story because after the course we were sent a list of rooms wherever it was that we were living that we could attend to do open mics along with a little PDF explaining what the next steps would be if you wanted to continue okay. doing it. That's good. Now, I think there were I think there were like 13 in in that particular course and two of us went on to continue doing stand-up uh, and a, a lot of the others were looking at doing professional development for speaking roles at work or whatever. And um, what happened, it turned out that that PDF fell by the wayside in my spam box. So I had no idea what was the next step. I reached out to a couple of people who were working comedians who I had a vague link to Right, and I'm well aware now that I would have been one of 300 people sliding into their DMs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> not much came of that. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing was a few months later, like I'd say it would have been four or five months later, I wrote a one-hour show. And when I say show, I use the term incredibly loosely. Uh, <laughs> but I ticketed it. And I took it home. You were saying before about how the first gig was like a friendly, supportive environment. So I kind of created another one of those by taking it back to Canberra where I grew up. And, you know, my family and my friends were all there. And so I basically made them all pay to come and watch me. <laughs> <laughs> have a crack at stand-up for 60 minutes. It would have been the most painful 60 minutes of all of their lives. But... Um, I actually had a, a public relations background as well. I did a, a, a Bachelor of Communications at the Uni of Canberra over there. And so I, uh, I used the skills from that and I sold this show out. And I felt, I was so proud of myself. I was like, oh, look at that PR degree and you're a comedian now. This is the best. But then, of course, on the night when I like peered out through the curtains and there were 110 people in this room and I had done jokes for five minutes once in the past, <laughs> suddenly I was like, oh, you're not so clever now. <laughs> like, you've got to deliver. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> and so I went out there and um, I did I did what could only be described as six, 60 minutes of um, cute jokes. Uh, not even jokes, sorry. That would have been great. Cute stories. 
which I think is like a, a huge stepping stone for a lot of people when they're when they're starting out is that you know you, you you identify a story and often often you're right often that could be a really great bit but you don't have the skills yet to punch it up or to know where the jokes are and so it's sort of like and then this thing happened and then that thing happened and then like five minutes later you just do a sort of cute shrug and like a funny face at the audience and that's the punchline. <laughs> yeah, you haven't you haven't worked out that um, you don't have to tell the whole story yet either or that you can yes. restructure a story so that the funny bit that's in the middle of the way you would ordinarily tell the story can be at the end of the way that you're telling the story on stage. Like, you know, that... Yes. yes. <laughs> And, and and that's and that's how it's comedy rather than a cute yeah. story. <laughs> so I so I did that and then I did it uh, but I brought the show back and then I still I just I don't know why, because I'm usually pretty good at investigating things, but I just I I just couldn't get a lead on what I was meant to be doing to get a foot in the door in comedy. So I had no concept of open mics. No one I knew had ever done them. Uh, I'd never noticed them around because it's just, you know, that confirmation bias wasn't there yet for me and it wasn't showing up on my Facebook feeds or whatever. And so I I ended up writing three 60-minute shows in like a bit over a year and I did the same thing. I took it to Canberra, then I brought it to Melbourne and then I went from there to a couple of years down the track was when I did my first open mic and that was during Comedy Festival and I'd registered for the festival. I felt like I was ready and uh, I was compared to two years earlier, but compared to now I wasn't. <laughs> but I still did it and uh, I did my first open mic and from there I was really out of touch with the community and the scene and so because and I had that marketing background and, that, and, and, and also an events background and things, I, I opened a room and I started doing this room and I branded it with my name. I called it Kirsty Webex Comedy Crushes and it was purely a placement. Like I just wanted people to start to know my name. And then uh, it was a paid gig. Uh, it was ticketed. It was up at the Wesleyan in Northcote. And I used to just get four pro comedians once a month up there and pay them a little bit of money to do a spot. And... It was great and that's how I made all of my friends and basically all my connections in the industry and then let the room go when I started to work. And so that was pretty much it. <laughs> it's an it's amazing story because it's very counterintuitive to how this story normally goes. You know, people starting out in an open <laughs> mic room and building up to doing their first hour. You just decided to do three hour long shows before you did your first open <laughs> mic. So it's a very interesting way of putting it together. I did not know about you that uh, you had done a Bachelor of Communications at the University of Canberra because that is something that we... Uh, share in common because I went to university in Canberra I went to UC and I did a Bachelor of Communications in Journalism at the University of Canberra so uh, awesome. I did not, not realise that we had that in common so you're born and bred in Canberra were you? Yes yes Western Creek south side and what was that like <laughs> growing up in Canberra were your parents in the public service like what, what was your family life like? Yeah so dad was in the public service and he originally was in the Air Force so we, I was born in Canberra and just after I was born, we got posted to Queensland and then we went to Queensland and they had my younger sister. I already had an older sister 
and uh, after my younger sister was born, we I, I think we got posted back to Canberra and then my dad made the call that we couldn't just be Zooming around everywhere all the time. And so then he worked his way up in the public service and he... He, he actually started out in the mailroom. He, he left the Air Force. And, and I think this is where I get a lot of my work ethic. And I, I think there's a lot of parallels with how I clawed my way up in comedy and, and how my dad um, came up as well when, when we moved to Canberra. So he started in the mailroom and then he basically read books on IT. Like he, he just had a hunch that IT was going to be the next big thing. And uh, there's no evidence that he was correct yet, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he might have nailed it. And, <laughs> and he, he read books at night. Like he, he'd deliver the mail in, um, I think it was the Treasury Department in the, in the public service, and then he read IT books at night basically and educated himself on IT. And then years later, like maybe 10 years later, he was the chief information technology officer in the department and he was completely self-taught and had just put his hand up, snuck into, you know, a really low-level job and then climbed his way up. And then he left there for the uh, private sector and uh, started up some IT companies and then sold them off and then moved on sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and so he, he had a he had a really interesting story and a lot of yeah a lot of drive and just um, just find a way like a, a bit of a find a way kind of attitude I think which I'm, I mean we've got identical personalities I I think my, my dad wanted to be a stand up comedian at some point and he would have been an excellent one as well like he's got an amazing sense of humour and a very clever one. And the the exact kind where when you listen to him speak, you're like, oh, yeah, he'd work that out to do it on his own up on stage. Like, he'd be able to do it. But, yeah, he's got a real find-a-way kind of system going on, which I think I do as well, that I, I definitely got off him. So, yeah, so we ended up staying in Canberra and then I did uh, all my school there. And I stayed at home for university because it was 15 minutes down the road to get to uni and... I was absolutely adamant that I was moving overseas as soon as I got my degree and that's what I did. So I was like, I'm not spending money on rent when I want to go and live La Vida Loca overseas for a while afterwards. So, yeah, Canberra until okay. I was 22. So I've got a lot of questions out of this, so many. Great. Firstly, thank you for telling us about your dad. That is such a cool story. I love that. And it gives me a real insight into, yes, your process as well and why you thought, you know, your way of doing these things was a way to do them. And it's proved that it was a way to do them, you know. It proves that there are various different ways to achieve these things. And I think sometimes we're limited by trying to do it the way that everybody else has done it or trying to do it the way that we're meant to do it when often there are a bunch of different ways to get to where you need to be going and you know learning how to do it a different way learning how to do it a counterintuitive way is often very important lesson even for the industry that you're going into that it doesn't have to be this experience that everybody goes through the exact same experience and it makes the industry that you go into so much richer for the fact that people found their way there through 
I mean, one of the things about journalism that I studied was I would often find, because I worked in the Canberra Press Gallery, that a lot of the people who worked in journalism as adults didn't have journalism degrees. They'd worked as lawyers or doctors or, you know, whatever, and then they'd come to journalism, and that made them a better journalist because they hadn't gone through the same structure as everybody else. So, firstly, I love that. Just I wanted to make that comment. I think that's really cool, and at some stage I'd really love to meet your dad. He seems like a real cool person. Is he still around? He's still with us? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he is. He's, he's a real cool guy. Yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, that whole story just made me desperate to, you know, get to meet him at some stage. So the first, yeah, firstly, yeah. that one of the things I was going to ask you about, and you've explained it a little, was this idea of, you know, why you stayed in Canberra for university. Because my experience of being in Canberra for university was it was a lot of people from other places, but Canberra kids, you know, often went, you know, somewhere else to go to, go to university to get away, but you wanted to go overseas. And you mentioned find a way. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to, talk about philosophy and whether you have like a life philosophy of some kind and then we can have a you know chat about why it is that you wanted to go overseas and and where you wanted to go so do you have a philosophy of some kind yeah I th- yes i preempted the question being a long time listener and fan of the podcast <laughs> and uh I've had I've had a few days to think about it, and in that time I realised that I have a lot of <laughs> philosophies I've That's followed. What we like. But yeah, great. Um, I think the the major overarching one that I came up with was try your best, and it's very general. And I I say it to myself all the time, and it's it's in relation to absolutely every facet of my life. It's just just have a go at it, try your best. And as long as I can, at the end of the day, be like, well, maybe it didn't go exactly how you wanted it to go, but you tried your best. And then I guess uh, as a as a subcategory of that, it's uh, be very good at apologising. <laughs> <laughs> On the occasions that your best wasn't quite good enough... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are both very good pieces of advice, I think. Very practical <laughs> philosophies. Um, all right, well, let's let's start with those two because were you always a try your best? Then were you always, you know, uh, I guess, um, uh, understanding that a good apology was sometimes part of that process? <laughs> Yeah, I think I always have been. Yeah, I f- I feel like I've al- I've always had that motivation to try my best and to give whatever it is I'm doing, a hundred and ten percent. Yeah, I I think that's like a really innate part of my character, and I also th- I don't know a lot about star signs, but I'm a Sagittarius and I know a bit about those, and. I feel like I'm a very classic one where I can also be very, I can be very blunt and I can be like very brash as well and very impulsive. And I think I learned, I had enough insight when I was young enough to be like, all right, you've got awareness around those things. So that means that you can try and rein them in. But then on the occasions that you can't rein them in, you need to get very good at a sincere apology. (laughs) 
I mean, I love this. This is such a great piece of like philosophy, but also a great piece of advice. Like, I think we live in a society at the moment where we're really struggling around the idea of holding people accountable for their actions. What is the appropriate level of holding people accountable for their actions? What's a proper apology? You know, what people should be apologising for? What is the right way to apologise? But also, as we go away from this idea of perfection, which has been an unreasonable standard that we've been holding people to, you know, the power of the apology, the power of not being the Fonz and actually being able to say, I'm sorry, is a really powerful thing. And I love how inbuilt it is into your personality that part of the idea (laughs) of being ambitious and taking risks and trying things, you know, it's not always going to work out. There's going to have to be a chance that at some stage, you're going to have to also say sorry for how some of it's gone. (laughs) I love it. I think it's a really beautiful insight. I mean, I've done over 200 episodes of this thing and that is, this is absolutely one of my favorite, particularly the learn how to apologize caveat. I wish somebody had said that to me twice. years ago because there's been plenty of times I've had to apologise. I'm getting better at it now, but it would have been good to get better at it right back then as well. Absolutely. You finished university in Canberra. You've stayed at home. You've saved money. You want to go overseas. Why do you want to go overseas and where do you want to go? Where do you go? I just just really wanted to see the world. Like I think having grown up in Canberra, I mean, but like people rag on Canberra, but I had a really fun time. I had really fun friends. I had a super fun time during school. Uh, like I was involved in loads of stuff. I played heaps of sport. I did drama. My friends were, you know, there were always parties on, and we just had we had a really fun time. And yeah. well, it's I say all, the, all the community of a country town, but all the convenience of a big city. It's like. It's almost that perfect thing. Like everyone kind of knows each other in like a good way, but there's, you know, because the public service is there, there's always an extra road, you know, more than they actually need. And there's good cafes and there's, you know, art comes to town and all those sort of things that you can actually enjoy at the same time. Yeah, Canberra is a bit of a... Totally. It's a butt of a lot of jokes, but it's a bit of a hidden secret as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think as, as an outsider now, I think that I can see that our experiences on the inside would have been very, very different to somebody stopping by for a few days. Like a lot of the joy came from who we knew and knowing the right places to go and hang out or being invited to the right parties or whatever it was. And uh, all the wrong parties. It was usually the wrong parties. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) But um, I I just feel like I... From the time I was a child, I just always wanted to see like something bigger and something different. And I I ended up moving to Taiwan. I went to Taiwan for a year and I went to study. I wanted to study Mandarin and I taught English to facilitate that. But I kind of got... uh, I kind of got hoodwinked by the organisation that brought me over and they promised I'd teach for 15 hours a week and then I could study Mandarin. But once I got there, they kind of took our passports and made us teach like 40 hours a week, which meant we couldn't study Mandarin. And uh, I did that for a year. And weirdly enough, it was a really, it was a really hard, not great year in hindsight, but coming up to the end of it I was like no like this isn't this isn't what my time in Taiwan was meant to be 
And this organisation has sort of robbed me of that experience that I'd been waiting for such a long time for. So I ended up staying and getting a job at a different company because I was just like, no, you will not rob me (laughs) of this. Like I'm sticking around. There's there's more to this story. And yeah, there was, there was. Um, There was a lot more to it because... I moved on to another school. I had the opportunity to learn Mandarin and I ended up staying for six years. So I came back when I was 28. Uh, yeah, and it was the best decision I ever made not to just walk away and cut my losses after that first year. So that's interesting too because for a lot of people they just would have been like, well, this is not what I wanted from this experience. Like I feel like I've been robbed for it and, you know, fuck this organisation, fuck this country, I'm going home, I'm never coming back here. So what did you have a thought of like going that way and what made you go the other way? What made you think, no, 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 no I'm going to... Like, I, this was not what I came here for, but I am going to get what I came here for regardless of this. Yeah, so it never it never occurred to me to leave. Like, I knew it was an option. It's not like I, I felt like I was trapped or anything. But I'm, I'm certain that it was the people. Like, I'd just made some excellent friends. I had some wonderful Taiwanese friends who I was learning so much from. Uh, I had a bunch of friends from all over the world, like from the expat community. Uh, Everywhere I met, I just, everywhere I went, I just met so many wonderful, interesting people with stories completely different to mine. And I always think that it's, it's, it's usually the people that you remember when you do anything. It's, it's how the experience made you feel and usually the people are intrinsically linked to that. So whenever I look back on any experience, like whenever I'm like, oh, that was such a joyful period in my life, like I'll immediately see the faces of the people that were there along that part of the journey and it's like those people were that journey and I think that's how I felt after that first year. I was just like... There's just so many people that I, I love, like I, I properly love after a short period of time knowing them and like I, and I want to spend more time with them and I want to, I want to see like where our friendships go, where our travels and our adventures go and, and I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And so with that in mind then, what, what take us forward then to the decision to come back home or did you come back home or did you go somewhere else after that? I came back home. I by that point I was in a relationship, and my partner at the time. What was his name? Was re- uh, <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> Strangely enough, it wasn't a gentleman. Oh, what? <laughs> Oh, no. I can't believe it, Will. I've been so guarded about my sexuality for years. I can't believe you'd out me on your finally, podcast. Finally, you've come to the <laughs> Philosophy Podcast to reveal it. Like People are like, I just thought she liked Bunnings. I followed her on Twitter and I just thought she really liked Bunnings. <laughs> the big reveal. What a scoop. This will probably make it to the Daily Mirror or something. <laughs> Is this how you get your ratings up, just cornering people into big scoops? Yeah, this is it. This is the, this is the entire thing. 
Okay, so you're in a relationship with someone that. in Australia or you're in a relationship with someone in, who... Yeah. yeah, in Taiwan. And and they wanted to move to Australia. And so we ended up coming back. And But to be honest, I was, I was ready. And I was very ready. A lot of my very dear friends had already left. And I... I felt like I felt like the journey was coming to an end. Like I felt myself getting irritated by things that ordinarily wouldn't have irritated me. And in hindsight, it's probably just that I wasn't 22 anymore. Like <laughs> I think when you hit your mid 20s, like you just get crankier every year and then you die. <laughs> 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 but I was like, I, I was like, all right, I'm ready. And the other thing was that I had a lot of friends over there that had lived there for a really long time. And they didn't properly feel like they belonged in Taiwan. And they definitely didn't belong back home anymore. And I started to get scared that at some point that's how I'd feel and I didn't want to feel like I didn't have a home as well. And I, I was ready to come back and I knew I wasn't going to be – at that stage I was working in publishing and I knew I wasn't going to work in publishing forever. Uh, I knew I – was, I was 28 so I was like, all right, I've got to get back and I've got to, I've got to work stuff out to have a life back home, like – which is ridiculous. 28 sounds so young but it, it actually proved problematic we, we came back and uh, my partner at the time's English and so we did the fruit picking thing and we travelled around and then we, we ended up breaking up and I came to Melbourne and basically <laughs> like no one would hire me. It was like it was nearly impossible to be hired because people were just like, well, what were you doing rolling around in Taiwan for six years? And I'm like, well... That's a question I've asked myself many times. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd tell me what I was doing rolling around in Taiwan. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just ended up taking the first job that I got that was in a call centre just to pay the bills and whatever. And, yeah, starting from scratch, building a life over here. And it was really, yeah, I mean, I felt really old at 28 doing that, so I'm really glad I didn't waste any more time. <laughs> but the funny thing is that, of course, you know, the career that you were, you know, was going to come along a couple of years from then, you know, still still was a couple of years away. You know, yeah, it, it didn't really matter that you were working in a call centre because at some stage you were going to do this comedy course and discover this whole new thing that you were going to do with your life, you know, which is... Super exciting. Did you feel like 30? You said you were 30 when you did this course, right? So it was a couple of years after that, yeah. is that right? So That's right. Yes. How did you feel about starting out in comedy at 30? Did that feel old at the time? Did it feel okay? Like I'm always interested in, you know, what – I mean because there's no right age to start comedy. In fact, some of the best comedians in the world started at 30, started at 40. It doesn't – matter it's one of those careers that you can start at some stage and often what you lack in experience of being a comedian you make up in experience of being a human being and having stories to bring to the table you know if you started out doing comedy in your, your late teens or early 20s you know eventually a lot of your stories are the same as anybody else who started out in their late teens or early 20s because you've just done comedy 
all your life. You have some life experience that you're bringing to the table. But how did you feel about being 30 coming into this, you know, into a new career, into a new industry? I didn't give it much thought at the time. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't realise that it was late and because I had that lovely shield of a couple of years where I was just doing comedy outside the industry like a satellite, just mm. reinventing the whole industry by myself, <laughs> I, like it. I had no idea. I didn't have a reference point. Mm. It wasn't until I went to like an open mic where I was like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, okay. He, the, yeah, sure. Like I'm, I'm the nana. But, but even at the time, I don't think people, I don't think people realised I was the age that I was at the time. Anyway, like there's a lot to be said for having a baby face. And it wasn't until later when people would be like, "Oh, you're 32 or 33 or 34 or whatever." Like, oh, I had no idea. And. Uh, it didn't – yeah, it really didn't occur to me for ages. But then I remember at one point where someone did – someone referenced themselves in a green room as being a late bloomer because they'd started at 27. And then I was like, oh, well, I started at 30. And then I remember my first reaction that I said was I had nothing to say in my 20s. Like I was still experiencing the experiences in order to have something to say or a perspective on things. So I was like me personally, and this isn't true of all young people, but me personally, it was, I'm glad that I actually didn't jump up when I was 21 because things could have been very different. <laughs> oh, it was on. rough you enough at 30. Those prime years that I had of being very angry about things that I didn't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. yelling a lot yeah. about issues that I really didn't have a full comprehension of. Great. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. That And that would have been me as well. I even remember like, even though I started at 30, I even remember a few years in deciding that a lot of people were tackling really tough issues and that that's probably what needed to happen. And having a brief deviation in one of my festival shows where I tried to tackle something before realising that I'm not that comedian and that is so great. Like, it's so great that those comedians exist and it's also so great that I exist and, like, we can all work alongside each other and they can do the really hard, heavy lifting on um, problems with government policy and I can tell you about how I tripped over my foot and fell in a hedge and lost consciousness for three hours. <laughs> I mean, that's a good uh, place to ask this question. Do you have a comedy philosophy, particularly, you know, as someone who formed their comic point of view, you know, external to the industry? So you weren't, you know, you weren't growing up on those cliches of, like you said, what comedy's you know, meant to be about, you know, and everybody has those phases of their careers, you know, where they're, you know, they decide that they're going to be a bit like this or a bit like that until tr you try on different things until you find out what works for you. Um, what is it that yes. works for you? What is it that you, you know, is your, your comedy philosophy? Uh, probably, I th it's probably very simple. It's just work hard and get funnier. And uh, that works for my own brain. Like when I'm looking at a bit and I'm just like, 
just make it funnier, like it triggers something in me that's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, good one, Kirsty. That's a good idea. And then I'll go back over it and then I'll try it again the next night and I'll be like, oh, that's better. You've added in some jokes. Like, And it's probably such a um, – it's yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny to me that that works for me. Just going, make it funnier, Kirsty. Oh yeah, all right, mate. Yeah, good good one. I'll do that. Um, but yeah, I probably from the outset, probably my true philosophy was always to 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 treat it like a professional job and like a business from the get go, and I did that literally from the beginning when I was writing one hour shows and had no jokes in them. Like I treated it like a business. I was professional with everyone around me. I made friends with the, sorry, (laughs) that was the buzzer. (laughs) I was going to say, have you guys still got a landline? I was like, is your landline ringing? Is that what's happening? It sounds like it. It's a very aggressive uh, doorbell intercom. And uh, we've got this weird balance here at the apartment between uh, the postie pretending I'm not home and leaving slips in the letterbox or ringing the buzzer for 15 minutes other days. So (laughs) (laughs) you've really got to roll the dice. (laughs) But I remember even from the outset, I was, yeah, I'd always have in my mind, like, be professional, be professional, treat it like a business, right? You want this to be your full-time job. Even if at times now it looks like that could possibly never happen, that's the goal, be professional. And I remember remember the first big gig I was booked for, it was at Midsummer Festival, the LGBTIQA plus festival here in Melbourne, and it was the Lesbian Comedy Gala. And uh, one of the organisers of it had seen me at a smaller gig a few weeks earlier and booked me very generously. It was well before the time that I should have actually been (laughs) ready to do comedy at this event, but booked me for it and it was a 700-seater. And and Hannah was headlining and uh, Scotty was on the bill, so Denise Scott, Cal Wilson... Hannah Gadsby, Geraldine Hickey, and a bunch of others, but it was my first time on a lineup like that in a green room with these people who I'd looked up to for a very long time. And I remember being in the green room and other people buzzing around getting selfies with all of them. And I remember, despite inside, like the probably teenaged Kirsty going, some of these people are your heroes. Get a photo with them. I was like, no, like they're my colleagues now. <laughs> Be professional. <laughs> they're your colleagues now. <laughs> and uh, that's the first time that I really remember like just being like, no, no, this is a workplace and you will be working with these people for the rest of your life. So, yeah, and there's been plenty of opportunities for photos moving forward. <laughs> it wasn't necessary in that moment, but, yeah, that's been that's been the big thing. The other I thing love that, that I wanted by to the quickly way. say... Can I just say, just stop yeah, down on that sorry. one for a second, because I think that is yeah. an interesting mindset because, I mean, firstly, what a room of comedians, like, you know, just, like... Yeah, and all bitches would have been incredibly mean to you. No, I mean some awful. Of, some of the most a bunch of awful women. Yeah, awful, awful women. <laughs> um, no, yeah, some of the nicest people that you would ever meet in the comedy industry. You know, incredibly supportive, incredibly generous. Like, yeah, but 
super super talented like you know just the like incredible group of people that anyone could understand somebody going ah oh, fuck it i'm just gonna get a photo with all these incredible people why not but i'm 100%. like you. i've been in those rooms and i remember it very early on when i first went to la you know you'd be at a restaurant and you'd see some like famous comedian at the restaurant and sort of think i could just go over and you know get a photo with this famous comedian but no i'm gonna wait until you know we're backstage at a gig we're doing together and that that'll be you know that's when i want to meet them i don't want to meet them now i want to meet them you know backstage at the gig you know as as a colleague as somebody that's working together yeah. so i totally get that and i i love it and it says i think you know something about the way that you were viewing it it's not overconfidence it's an ambition you're like i want to do this i want to be one of these people i will see them again this is not the only opportunity i'm going to get to see cal wilson this is not the only opportunity i'm going to get to see Hannah Gatsby. I am going to, you know, be on lineups with, you know, these incredible women for, you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years. Great. Love it. How did it go is my question. Was it a good gig? Yeah. Well, I, I like how you summarised it as well because that's exactly right. It was it was ambition. Absolutely not not overconfidence at all. In fact, when, when I was in the green room, I, I distinctly remember just having a quick mental flick back through my set and being like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't enough. And (laughs) I went out and I did it. (laughs) I got like, not time-wise, it was my five minutes. I had the five minutes nailed, but I went out there. And better than the first time, I reckon I got five laughs in five minutes. Uh, Still not enough. But Denise was on after me and when I walked uh, off the stage, she gave me two thumbs up and a hug back in the days when we were allowed to hug. And she was like, that was great. You've got it. And too kind, Denise. I've told her subsequently about that. And I'm like, too, too much, Denise. Like, (laughs) there weren't many laughs. Well, you said there was five in five minutes, and I think you'll find the popular expression to describe someone as being funny, you know, for normies, is that person's a laugh a minute. Now, as comedians, <laughs> we know a laugh a minute is nowhere near enough to be professionally funny, but no, but to no. the outside world, it's literally the expression. They're a laugh a minute. Yeah, that is very true, actually. So I'm right on the mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, it, it it went fine. I came off the stage and I was on cloud nine because I'd just done stand-up to 700 people and I was like, all right, that wasn't enough, but it was a great experience and it was great fun and it just put so much fire in my belly to work out how to write jokes and how to make them funnier. And that that was a huge turning point for me and it was very early on and I remember... There's even a bit from that set that I still do now regularly on stage and I have been fleshing it out for like six years now and I'll probably always do the bit because it's very funny now and it's got lots of jokes in it and it used to go for one minute and now it goes for five and I've just been tinkering away at it for six years and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I reckon that gig was the one that really ignited the passion in me. And and then I stuck around, of course, and watched all of them absolutely destroy. 
And because I'd just come off the stage, it was very fresh in my mind and I was very critical and I felt like a, you know, a, a fish out of water whilst also still feeling very proud. So I, I really took in what they were doing and I was like, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, okay. Okay, so she split that bit into three separate jokes and and just like studied them for the rest of that gig and then, yeah, yeah, it was a big, big turning point for me. And the other thing that I was going to say is... Um, with the part about – I liked how you said before about how it was ambitious, not overconfident, because that's exactly what it felt like. And sometimes when you're trying to articulate these moments, like it makes it sound like you just woke up one day and you were like, I'm the greatest comedian in the world and I'm going to be the biggest comedian in the world in a few years. Uh, it's just a – yeah, it's, it's a gap in being able to articulate it properly. But I remember – when I started to meet more comedians, somebody told me <laughs> that when I was starting out, there was a, a real perception amongst some comedians in Melbourne that I was incredibly arrogant and uh, had circumvented the open mic scene because I was too good in my own mind for it. And I think about I think about that often in different contexts when I have a really firm opinion on something and then I think wait up you you don't actually know anything about that like you're basing this entire judgment off one like throwaway comment someone made or your perception from the outside and uh yeah it's it was a really interesting learning curve for me and how I interact with other people and other scenarios as well because it had nothing to do with arrogance or thinking I was better than anybody else. It was literally that I could not find how to be a comedian. <laughs> I, I love so much about this because I think you've stumbled on something that is like, I mean, prevalent probably in every industry, but I don't work in every industry. So I don't really know if it's prevalent in every industry. I work in the comedy industry and I won't dob in the people that I'm talking about in this scenario, but uh, Adelaide Fringe, back when we could... Oh, well, it is happening again this year, but it was uh, it was literally the night that they had announced the Melbourne International Comedy Festival was being uh, cancelled. And so it was a Friday night in Adelaide, uh, two nights to go with the Adelaide Fringe. And we were sitting around backstage, a whole bunch of comedians having a bit of a... Like, in, you know, in some ways, a bit of a sort of, like, you know, shock and mourning, you know, session where we're all just sure. sort of sitting around going, oh, fuck, you know, this, like, for me, a thing that I'd done, you know, was about to do twenty for my 25th year in a row, you know, that I'd always assumed would just be a thing that I would do every year suddenly wasn't happening and we're all talking about comedy and we're all, you know, in that weird mood. Like, we don't quite understand the ramifications of you know, what is about to happen at that point. But there is a sense of, the, uh, you know, it's awake. But at the same time, we're still in the middle of this festival. And anyway, I'm, we're having a conversation about comedy and I'm talking to some people who are in the scene still. I don't really consider myself to be in the comedy scene. I am a professional stand-up comedian still, but, you know, I'm not doing enough gigs, you know, either in Sydney or Melbourne or any of those sort of places to understand the dynamics of the actual scene itself. And so my right. observations are always external to that. I'll be like, hey, I like that person on Twitter or I like their podcast or whatever. I don't know any of the scene baggage that comes with it. And so these people sure. were, were pointing out like, you know, some of the people that I like that they have these firm opinions about. And it really did give me that sense of going, oh, yes, so much of what you think about somebody can be often formed by the company that you keep, 
you know, that it is a group dynamic. We've all decided that that person is arrogant or we've all decided that that person, and sometimes it's really good to step back from the group dynamic and make up your own mind about these things, to not be dragged along by what everybody else thinks about something. And I love that you just, you, you, you learned a lesson about yourself out of that. You know, you say you check yourself when you have those reactions. And I think that is, that's it. I just wanted to point out that I think that's really powerful. I think it's really important. It's okay not to like someone or to have an opinion about someone, but just make sure it's your opinion. Make sure you're not parroting what everybody else thinks or just going along with a group dynamic about what your opinion of somebody is. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. More a statement than a question. I've got to be honest with you, Kirsty. <laughs> like, uh, I'll take that as a statement rather than a question. But. It's so true, though, and something that I really love about because I'm not really in in the comedy scene either. Like, I'm I'm not part of any any big groups. I've got uh, I'm fortunate enough to have some very wonderful friends in the comedy industry. However, just probably just aligned with my own values and the kind of people that I'm attracted to uh, as friends, the mates that I have, when we get together, we talk about our ideas or what we've been up to or it's not – and they're not really in the scene either. Like my proper friends in comedy, like they're not really in the scene either. And so we don't – most of the time we don't know what the politics are that are happening they're like, we'll rock up and do our spot at whatever gig or whatever and we'll get out of the green room before everyone starts ripping apart whoever's the one who's in trouble this week. So we're very much on the fringe of it. <laughs> and <laughs> But I enjoy, I enjoy that. Like I, I love catching up with them and the fact that we all work in the same industry and we might talk about something funny that happened at a gig on the weekend or whatever for a few minutes but then we'll talk about our families and our cats and what's happening at home and like I love that I love that it's not oh we're having brunch again this week it's going to be another two-hour gossip session about you know who the biggest prick is in comedy like I love that I love when that we're not engaged in that because that's boring it's boring to me uh so how was your last year? So we talk about the idea of that was the night where it announced that everything was being cancelled. I I have, I think, probably the greatest empathy for, you know, obviously I got asked a lot in the last year about my thoughts around, you know, not being able to perform live. But in some ways, I think my thoughts are less relevant because the truth of it is that if I was told that I never got to do stand-up comedy again, there's no argument that I could make that was that I hadn't had a go at it I've had the opportunity to try everything that there is possible to try in the world of stand-up comedy it does not mean that I don't have greater ambitions it does not mean that I don't want to do that for the next 20 years if you know I will be allowed to but but I've had a go at it whereas there are a whole bunch of people who are more you know, in the emerging stages of their career where the idea of having an entire year where you basically couldn't perform in front of people must have been very confronting. And I consider you probably to be in that demographic, you know, someone whose star was on the rise, you know, you're really starting to get some, you know, juice going in your career, you know, probably a very creative time. You've been doing it the right amount of years that normally this is when you really start to kind of get a handle on what it is you're doing, what it is you're capable of doing, really opening up your world of, oh, fuck, maybe I'll try this. Maybe this is my ambition. Uh, how was 
you know, this previous year that we've just gone through for I you? think the eternal optimist in me to begin with was like, oh, it'll blow over. <laughs> <laughs> Which it will. <laughs> Eventually, it's got to blow a bit <laughs> harder. Blow right? harder. Yeah. I, th- I think to begin with, the full magnitude didn't really hit me, and yeah, I was like, "All right, we're being sidelined." Obviously, comedy festival being cancelled was the massive, like the the really huge knock to all of us that really made us go, "Oh, okay, wait up." Yeah all right, this is going to have a, a big impact on the year. And then, and then you know, after festival for me, like I had, I had a few weeks of touring with the comedy festival coming up after that and I had corporates booked like right through the year and I, I was going into comedy festival being like, this is a solid year of work, like no stresses at all here. This is great. And then I just remember the day that I sat down and – I wasn't really down about it or anything, but I guess something in my brain told me that I needed to do it, but I went through and deleted everything out of my calendar. And that was the real thing, like, oh, all right. And then I – originally I was really worried financially, obviously, and my – partner's a nurse that's what you've got to do when you're a comedian is you've got to hook up with someone who's an essential worker <laughs> to balance out the nature of your work <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good piece of advice for any young comedians uh look for it, there's probably another pandemic coming get yourself it doesn't have to be a hospital but like coals anything that's an essential service just hook up that with should have been there. my philosophy <laughs> Like, when you ask me the big question, just hook up with an essential worker. That's the philosophy. <laughs> all all essential workers should be absolutely essential workers. Yeah, it should it be should been. be criminal to have another kind of pairing. <laughs> like two yeah. essential workers is just disgusting because you're taking the opportunity away from another non-essential worker. Mm. <laughs> Also, who's going to look after the house when you're both out being essential, exactly. working extra hours? You need somebody at home <laughs> yeah. to rub your feet when you get home That's from exactly your essential right. service. <laughs> so Elle, from the get-go, Elle was like, well, I'm I'm going to be busy. Like My work's not drying up. And she was like, we can very easily live on my salary, so stop worrying about that. But the fiercely independent person who's always worked in me was like, no. And uh, the number of times we had the conversation where she was like, you would say the exact same thing for me, like if the roles were reversed. And I'm like, oh, I know, 100%. I'd insist on supporting you, but absolutely not. And it was it was a relief <laughs> to have that, though. It was a relief to know that of course, like Elle was going to keep going to work. Like, you know, we, we were going to be totally fine. But it actually, I, I ended up getting busy. I was, I, I think I was really fortunate in that I'd, I'd done a lot of corporate work for a lot of years and had a lot of contacts in that sort of business world. And people that I'd worked for and with in the past 
just started coming out of the woodwork, like asking me to do a stand-up session here and and some videos, some like motivating videos for the staff members here. And, you know, I had a, a couple of gigs for a while where I was making funny little videos each week that would then get sent across to an organisation and they'd send them out to all of their staff working from home to give them a bit of pep in their step. So I just... The year ended up all, all right. Like we we lived down near the bay and there was a lot of walks up the water, which is my jam anyway. Like that's what I'd be doing even not in lockdown. Uh, you know, we got a cat, obviously, because that's the uh, traditional six-day anniversary gift in my community. <laughs> <laughs> she brought us a lot of joy she's like you know I'd sit here and I'd be working on jokes or whatever while Elle was at work during the lockdown and I wouldn't have seen anybody for ages and and you know Fergie just sleeps like 23 hours and 45 minutes a day and but just you know like you have pets just that weird thing we're just having them there asleep near you is just this weird comforting thing where like you just never get an opportunity to feel alone or lonely or anything no uh, Winnie's asleep yeah on there the we go floor. there we go so she's just been asleep oh, in the background so for this cute. entire uh exactly her sister's at the vet actually it's a big vet day today so Ramona's had a grass seed in her leg and so she has to go off to the vet to get the grass seed removed from her leg and uh uh, Winnie doesn't. She's just at home sleeping, sleeping in the background of my podcast at the same time. So the cat is literally church. Our cat is outside. Uh, we got the. So there was a guy from Wires. I don't know if you know who, what Wires is, but Wires is basically if animals are injured. For people who don't know, if animals like native animals are injured, you can call an organisation called Wires, and they will come and you know help you out. And so we had a snake that needed some help here on the yeah the property the other day, and so we call it out Wires. And, oh, man, if you ever want to offend somebody who works rescuing native animals, show them your cat. Because it turns out that people who rescue native animals fucking hate cats. Cats are the devil to native animals. And he just looked at us like we were fucking monsters. Like, we're like, we're heroes. We've called wires to help this poor snake, you know. Somebody else might have just, like, banged the snake on the head with a shovel, but we've decided to try to help the snake and then he's just looking at us like you horrible people that's so good that's so funny because you just reminded me of when I posted a photo of Fergie on our balcony so we live on the first floor Fergie has tiny little legs and can barely get onto the bed we normally have to help her up she's also 13 you can see in this photo that she's on a balcony and there's a wall but then you can see trees in the background and I just remember about six months ago posting this photo on Twitter and this person just going to town on me about what a monster I was having a cat and allowing her outside blah 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 and I'm like she's up in the air on a balcony like, she can't catch anything. She can barely, like, pop her head into her bowl to get snacks. Like, <laughs> she's no risk at all. Like, you don't know anything about this situation. <laughs> like, <laughs> just relax. 
Wow. It was a tirade. That was the one time on the internet somebody who didn't know any of the details overreacted. Yeah, I think it was the first time. So you uh, like spend a, <laughs> the first and only time. They use it as an example in university courses. You do spend a bit of time online, and a lot of you know what I first knew about you and your work was from seeing you online and just seeing you be funny online and thinking, oh, here's somebody that I am interested in. So, um, how big a component? was online in building a bit of a following like a broader following than than what you had and and do you get much negative reaction online to what you yeah so it was a huge component it it was a massive one uh yeah from from the outset like i was always really focused on building a social media following and it's been slow it's been slow and steady uh Twitter, I ended up, I had Twitter for years and I had like 100 followers for like six years. And then one year I was like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna learn, like I'm going to have a look and I'm going to get my head around it and I'm going to try and grow this. And I, I grew it by thousands of followers in a year. In, so for me, the organic growth was so fast on Twitter. I also used it to test premises so, like, a lot of the jokes that I'd throw up on Twitter, then they'd do really well and I'd flesh them out into a bit on the stage and I'd just, like, flick back through my Twitter, like, every few weeks and, like, just go through and pull out all of the things where I still was like, oh, that's really funny. And then I'd turn them into bits. And then, you know, through that, it was really great for networking. Like, it was, I, I have gotten so much work out of Twitter, like, corporate work and... Um, I mean, I became friends with uh, Jo Stanley initially on Twitter and then I met her at a party last year and then she's gone on to start her own radio station called Broad Radio by women for women and she got me on as a co-host and now that's something I regularly do and that literally started out as a Twitter connection. Uh, So I think in terms of being able to put your humour and your work and a bit of your personality out there so that people get a little bit of a grasp of what you're about, maybe what your politics are about occasionally, maybe just like, you know, they can just see how you interact with other people. Like it's, I think it's a really good snapshot into into who people are when they're online a little bit on Twitter. Uh, sometimes it can be horrendous. <laughs> but I've met... Yeah. So yeah, sometimes sometimes yeah, that's not a very flattering yeah, yeah, totally. But. And I don't I don't get a lot of negativity on there. I know last year there were a couple of times during lockdown where I was spending definitely way more time online than I had been, which I think was true of a lot of us. And there were times where I was getting increasingly frustrated just by just by people trying to like out funny you or point something out or a flaw in your argument when you were blatantly joking. And then I'd I'd get I'd start to get annoyed, and occasionally I'd like do like a, a snarky reply or whatever, and then and that was always an indicator for me to like like rein it in. You don't need to read all of the replies. You only need to reply to your mates. Walk, go for a walk. You've been online for too long. If you care about what Bridget from Mount Martha thinks about your cat and how her diet needs to change, like. <laughs> And so, so there's not a lot. It's usually, it's it's usually things of no consequence that that people come at me about that wind me up. But I'm getting I'm getting better. I, I think another thing. This is actually a, a good lead in as well. I think 
another another part of my my philosophy that um that I live by very regularly is to try and let things go and like just on a minuscule level or on a much bigger level like just try and let things go and so I'm trying to get better at like just counting to 10 and just going yeah it does who cares what this stranger on twitter.com thinks like Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you've taken a breath. You don't care now. So that's good. You can go about your day rather than getting embroiled in a war with them that everybody that follows you gets to see. <laughs> what I, because that's, I'm trying that as well. And I think mostly I'm very successful at it, but it's, it amazes me sometimes just in a moment of weakness when somebody says something that I just react to. And then. Of course, like two tweets later when now it's a discussion between me and them, I literally am looking at myself going, you knew this would happen. This is why you don't do this. You literally have a rule not to do this and you've broken that rule and the exact same thing that made you come up with this rule in the first place has happened. This is your own fault. You did this to yourself. You have no one else to blame for what you're in. You should have just ignored it. Yeah, I do the same. I'm like it always, it just brings great suffering to yourself every time and and also mm. if you if you get engaged you end up wound up like even when you walk away you'll be wound up for a bit after and for what purpose like right. trying to be right or whatever against like an internet stranger or trying to tell mm. them to butt out of your life and you'll water your plants as often as you deem appropriate like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter and now now they're what's the popular expression they're renting yeah. real estate inside your head and i think that that is it is a good way to look at it so when are you because you seem to be like a lot of your philosophies seem to be Quite positive is what I would say. You have an 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 air to you that it, you know, exudes positivity. Your comedy has a positive nature to it. Like there is a celebratory nature to it. When are you at your worst? What does that? Look oh, like? oh, I can I can be cranky. I mean, I think I have a lot of these philosophies because I like I definitely can be cranky. I mean, I've got this unwavering like commitment to social justice and to everyone around me being looked after and treated well and with respect. And if I see something happening that deviates from my ideal of how everyone should be being treated or whatever, like it's like zero to a hundred, like, like, like it makes me really angry. Like, and yeah, not, not, I'm, I'm not an aggressive person, but like I mentioned earlier about when I was talking about the being able to apologize and whatever, like I can be incredibly blunt and direct. And, uh, I would say it usually manifests that way. Like, I think if you asked that question of my partner, she would probably use the term snappy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I can definitely be snappy and that's something that I'm very conscious of and, and that's at the top of my list of my negative personality attributes that I definitely like am mindful of and try and rein in. But, yeah, like I can be snappy and I can be impatient and, uh, yeah, and definitely impulsive. So I really – I try to practice like a lot of things in my life that I know make – like keep my feet on the ground and like stop me 
you know, feeling any of those things in a moment. So, you know, even if something that I don't like happens before me so I can react calmly to them. So I got really into like mindfulness a few years back and like I like to practice mindfulness regularly. Sometimes when I haven't for a while, like I start, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're cranky a lot. Yeah, remember that thing that you used to do all the time to like not be so cranky about things? <laughs> like go back and do that for a bit. And like, you know, I like to do a lot of like – I stopped doing it because I was fixed. <laughs> well, that's exactly right, isn't it? Yeah, by the thing that yeah, you were so doing. Yeah, so don't stop. Keep stopped. doing it. It's meant to be part of your daily routine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I do, I try, I'm, I'm really big on, like, self-care and, and also probably self-help as well. Like, I'm always trying to find ways to for everything to be easier, I guess, and, like, just to live, like, peacefully and harmoniously and, you know, just whatever the, the new hack is on, you know, how, how you can feel serene each morning. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll buy some magnesium then. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, you reckon that... <laughs> Got a cupboard full of rushy mushrooms. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like you reckon that a beach walk's best between two and three o'clock if you want to, like, sleep better at night and be generally more peaceful. All right, I'll set my alarm for two o'clock every day. Like, <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I can be a nightmare. Okay, I am interested in that because... Uh, so, yeah, but it's management, identify, identification of what those things are that you don't like and then trying to manage around them, which I think is a very interesting way, you know, to look at life. What are your priorities for a good life? You know, what is important to you? If you were going to, you know, rate here is my perfect life, here is this life that I want to be leading, What what is it filled with? What does it look so like? So it's filled with people that I love first and foremost. So people that I like to be around, people that are also probably intrinsically positive, which uh, doesn't equate to being fair weather friends. Like I like people to be whole people that go through all of the triumphs and tragedies that the rest of us do as well. (laughs) But I like it when, you know, I like it when people have a fresh perspective and when, you know, they're they're doing their best to be upbeat about things, I suppose. Um, But, yeah, so surrounded by good people with values aligned with my own and... Uh, being in the outdoors a lot, that means a lot to me. Uh, one of the best things that we ever did was move down by the bay because for the next little while I'll, I'll still need to live in Melbourne for, for comedy. So living even – and, you know, like the bay is not even – it's not the most beautiful part of <laughs> beach in Australia, but it's enough when you're living in the city. Uh, so, yeah, living in the outdoors, uh, being able to get a good night's sleep – being able to get a good coffee, being able to go for some long walks or bike rides and uh, feeling fulfilled in the work that I'm doing, I think, is very important to me. And and I do feel like that doing comedy. I feel constantly fulfilled and excited by it. Like, yeah, I was, I was thinking yesterday how I feel excited every time I open my inbox at the moment. Like I'm, like I feel like I'm at that, at that at the minute, and I don't know if it's just because we were starved of gigs last year, but I just feel like the possibility possibilities are endless at the moment, and it's like a really exciting time. Okay, so um, two questions off the back of that. Then, firstly, 
you're excited because you've got shows coming up. We're tell, t- let's uh, talk about what shows you do have coming up. So what do you have coming up in a show sense? Where are you performing? Yeah, so right now all I've got is 14 shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival coming up. So I'm doing April 6th to 18th and I've got a couple of shows on the 17th instead of the standard one. Um, and it's just a 50-minute show. A lot of it's new. That that isn't brand new is from last year's show that only got shown at two preview shows in Hobart. So that's been locked away for a full year. Um, and that's that's it in in terms of um, you know a festival show. I've got a lot of work coming up, but not yeah. I haven't organised a tour. Okay, so. Let's talk about Melbourne then. That's fine. That's good. I, this is a good context because Melbourne's the scariest one. It's the one that I have been hesitating even to tell people <laughs> about, you know, like, because I took a long time to come back to comedy. Like, it, you know, it was 11 months, I think, between my wow. last gig and my first gig back in front of strangers. And I still find it hard to tell people that these Melbourne shows are going to happen because they've already been cancelled twice. They got cancelled last year at this time and then they got the rescheduled ones in October got cancelled also. The idea that they will actually happen in April terrifies me a little bit but it seems like you're very optimistic about it and are you terrified at all are you terrified about the idea that just some shit will happen between net when we're talking and when the shows are meant to happen that maybe yeah the shows look happen? it's definitely at the back of my mind i think i've tried to push it there I'm, i am being incredibly optimistic that it'll go ahead i feel like it's i feel like it will i've been doing some good work around um around town like i don't mean to pat myself on the back but when i've been emceeing rooms i've been asking everyone to laugh with their mouths closed and uh i (laughs) (laughs) i think that's the circuit breaker that we needed (laughs) (laughs) if you could just learn to laugh out your ears we'd really appreciate it um, but I, if you could just laugh yeah. into your elbow, that's what you've got yeah. to do. If you're going to yeah, laugh, little, yeah, just, just into your elbow, just a little one, just a mouth shut into your elbow. Perfect. <laughs> um, I, I, look, I am feeling optimistic about it, and yeah, I, yeah, I, I know the little lockdown was, you know, a little hiccup that we had last week here, and I think that really rattled a lot of people to- totally understandably and I think really the big fear going into it like w- was that it wasn't just going to be five days but I also every time there's one of these little hiccups like I just really hope and I'm certain that this is the theory that the government's just like oh there's been another blip all right we've got to rein it in we've got to have a look we've got to go over the processes again we've got to you know we can't keep having that happen and maybe that is naive or maybe that is too optimistic but I feel like we were a few weeks out from the festival and like I just want that to have been the little lockdown that'll take us through and as long as everything's fine until April 18th (laughs) that's all we're asking (laughs) Uh, so, yes. yeah, that is all we're asking. Please, <laughs> fingers crossed, that is all we're asking. But what was your first gig back? What was the first time that you went on stage in front of people after the big break? Oh, that's a good question. It was probably, I would say it was probably Basement. Basement Comedy in the City, which is one of my favourite gigs. And also, I don't want to shoulder the whole blame, but I've emceed Basement Comedy 
the night before every lockdown that we've gone into. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine if they found that was the one common identifying factor. (laughs) We've tried everything else. This is it. You just cannot book a basement comedy anymore. Yeah, yeah, so what they do, instead of locking down the city every few months or whatever for a week or two, the, the circuit breaker becomes whenever Carl books me for basement... They lock me down for the night. (laughs) (laughs) You can perform, but you've literally got to be in a bubble of some kind just for the sake of this. Uh, All right. I'm conscious of the fact that we're, you know, running out of time and I still have some standard questions that I like to ask on this show. This has been delightful. I hope you'll come back uh, for a catch-up episode and join me another time because I feel like we... There was a whole bunch of things that we barely got to touch on, but the time has just flown by. So, um, uh, firstly, uh, what do you reckon happens when we die? Oh, um, this is something that I ebb and flow on a lot. At the moment, I'm going pretty deep into a nothing kind of phase. I, I, I reckon nothing. nothing. Nothing for us. Like, I reckon you just very peacefully slip away and just become a different form of energy. And that's pretty much it. What have you been at other stages? Like when you're not at that, when you've like, when instead of flowing, you're ebbing or ebbing, you're flowing. (laughs) What what are the other positions that your mind has gone through? Well, I mean, it was probably really extreme to begin with because I was raised a Catholic and so there was a whole heap of fire and brimstone or heaven, depending on, you know, where your life goes. And uh, I had to throw that ideology away when I realised I was a big gay. Uh, <laughs> there was no gain. Are, are the Catholics not fine with that? I, I hadn't read anything about that. Is there... Nah. Well, when I was growing up, they weren't down with it. So it was like, well, all right, if heaven's not an option anymore, then I don't believe in it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, you can't dump me. I dump you. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. So, what age are we talking there? Like, what, when? When? When is this? Like, when? Is, so, are those two things actually coincidental? Like, as in, like, do they coincide with? No, each other? they like, don't. No, it- they they actually don't. That was just for comedic purposes. Um, <laughs> I hmm. I told my parents that I didn't want to go to church anymore and basically didn't want to be a Catholic anymore when I was twelve, and. And they were cool with it. I mean, my dad. My dad isn't Catholic anyway. My mum is, and and like they were so fine with it. And I stopped going to church. My little sister followed suit, and we weren't wildly religious. Like we went to Catholic primary school, and um, you know we were like fair weather Catholics, I guess. Like we'd pop down for Easter and give everyone a high five, and then. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris, Christmas. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And also I remember there was a time where we found 
a church in Yarralumla in in Canberra that did a really super short service. And I think this basically sums up the kind of Catholics that we were <laughs> because we were all rejoicing mm. that it was approximately a 17-minute service mm. and we used to call it drive-through yeah. mass. Here's, here's the whole service. Two, two, four, six, eight, Jesus <laughs> yeah, is right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'd be like, it's like going through the drive-through. It's the best. It's like you barely get your bum on the pew and then it's time to go. <laughs> Yeah. We'll just have uh, three communal wines, three body of Christ. Do you want fries? You guys, anyone want some fries with the? Exactly. So, so that was twelve, and I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't properly realize I was gay until I was like twenty-one or twenty-two. So it was a long time before that. But um, yeah. So I mean, I you know, I went through all of that, and then there was a time after that where. I don't know. You ha- it's it's like anything. You have to undo the learning, or you've got to undo the brainwashing, or whatever. So, I think I probably was. Um, yeah, I I probably I thought a lot about those things afterwards, but I don't think I ever inherently, really deeply believed any of the things that we were sort of taught through through the church. So yeah, look, I'd say. Yeah, like I'd say after we die, there's just yeah. I reckon there's nothing. There's like. There's no more lower back pain. (laughs) (laughs) What a sweet relief. That's what you're saying. (laughs) A sweet relief. (laughs) What what does it say on a gravesite? Does that say, ah. Uh-huh. Sweet relief. And then, and then I want my foam roller to. I just want someone to set it on fire on top mm. of the grave, like just. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, we didn't cremate her. We cremated the foam roller as per her instructions. Um, do you uh, think about death much? Is it something that you worry about? No. No, I don't. Um, I say this as someone who's recently started riding a motor scooter, so <laughs> mm-hmm. I probably should be thinking about it more. <laughs> but no, I don't. I was I was really fixated on death for a while when I was a small child, to the point where I, I guess I became cognizant when I was like five or six that my parents were going to die one day, and I remember that it went for months where every night I would cry myself to sleep and my dad would have to come in or my mum would have to come in and they'd be like, yeah, we'll be around for a while, don't worry, don't worry, for months. And I was just really fixated on it, like, and I just couldn't get my head around, yeah, that, you know, that's before I found out about the perks of no longer having lower back pain. So I was like (laughs) just really bogged down in the finality of it and the fact that, you know, like if mum dies, who's going to make my lunch? And uh, no, that's that's very basic. It was a lot more than that. I was going to miss her terribly. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) And luckily that passed and then I don't... Yeah, I don't think about it a great deal at all. Like, I, I yeah, I really don't. And, we, yeah, which is funny because I'm not, you know, I just mentioned the motor scooter and stuff, but I'm not, I, I mean, yeah, my girlfriend refers to me as Safety Sally quite a bit. So, like, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I am quite aware of safety and I am very safety conscious and I guess that is in relation to wanting to survive. But I don't extend that much further than just wanting to keep alive in the now. Well, do you wor- uh, do you care, worry, or think about the idea of legacy? You know, leaving something after you. I do think about that, and I don't think I thought about it much before I became a comedian. 
but I do think about it sometimes. I do, I do think about it in terms of like my career goals and things. I think that, you know, I would like to leave behind some comedy or some work or whatever it ends up being a TV show or like whatever. I'd like to leave something behind that shows, yeah, what, what I, what I had to offer, I guess. If uh, I had a magic wand and I could give you any opportunity to do that thing, have you thought about what that thing is? I mean, again, I know that it's a very difficult question to ask somebody to reveal like their ultimate fantasy. And it can, you know, have a, like, you know, it comes with that proviso that this is not arrogance. You have not brought this up. I have asked you the question, you know, and I'd love to hear it because I like to hear what people's you know dreams or hopes or ambitions are about what it is that they want to do I imagine at some stage it's crossed your mind that you know if somebody came to you and said hey we love you we want to you know let you do whatever it is that you want to do what what would that thing be so there's probably two of them and one is definitely tv like I'd love to put a sitcom together like, I'd love it. I've had a lot of ideas rolling around for the last few years but have been too focused on trying to build that stand-up profile to get anything off the ground properly. But I've got notes everywhere and, like, I just need that time to have a break to sit down and jot some things down. But I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to get some of those ideas off the ground at some point. And the other is um, is I want to I, I be just doing stand-up in huge venues like I just just that thing of just and you know it's not a financial thing it's just going right back to what I was mentioning earlier about just having this innate love and joy that comes from making other people happy and making other people laugh and and that's always my thing I'm like whenever I'm trying to like get more people to like come to my shows or to you know listen to my podcast or whatever it is I'm like I just want you to hear it because I think it's fun and I think it's something you'll enjoy for half an hour or an hour or whatever it is and like I just I want you to be in there in that moment with me to enjoy that and so I think from there stems this yeah desire just to yeah to have this to build up a career where I'd be playing in massive venues to heaps of people what's the best piece of advice you've ever got it can be in regard to anything I've received a lot of great advice over the years. I've got two that have sprung to mind. There's always two with me, have you noticed? Um. <laughs> I like it. This is good. You're a good podcast guest. I, I, don't know. I don't have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Occasionally, I've just done little reviews of what you've said, basically. Like some, sometimes I have to really like, you know, guide someone around an interview. You know, I feel like I'm really testing my skills. But today, it's you've just said great stuff. And then occasionally, I've kicked back and just told you how great I thought what you said was. And then we've moved on to something else and I've loved it so give us the two I just love how every time you're like what's the thing and I'm like well there's two um so one so one of them is control the controllables and I don't even know if controllables is actually technically a word but I love it it's so so simple and sometimes when my imagination starts running wild and I'm like, but what if this, thing's ha- this thing happens or what if that thing that I think is going to happen doesn't happen because this other thing happens and I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Control the controllables. You sent the email. Now you wait. It's that simple. Just control the controllables. Like that's, that's a very grounding 
statement for me that, that someone told me many years ago. And the other one is when I, when I lived in Taiwan, to, Taiwanese people very frequently would say, don't think too much. And that is also so simple but it's also it, – and it's, it's pro- it probably goes hand in hand with control the controllables as well. But it's just, you know, when you, whenever you'd start getting ahead of yourself or, or whatever, so one of your mates that, that was a local would just be like, oh, don't think too much, just wait. But you'll find out eventually, like, just don't think too much. And, like, I, and I do that because I'm, I'm not an overthinker by nature, I don't think, but – Sometimes, particularly when I'm anticipating something or when I'm excited about something, like often related to comedy, something coming up on the horizon, if I'm really excited about something, I'll, my imagination will start to run wild. And, I mean, that's been particularly easy in the last 12 months, you know. Oh, I've got this huge opportunity that I've been waiting eight years to be asked to do. Uh-oh, what happens if there's another lockdown, <laughs> you know? And so I'm like, oh, no, control the controllables. And what are they? Just go around asking everybody at gigs to laugh with their mouths closed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is a bit of a newer question that I've started uh, asking, but it's something that I've been fascinated by for a while, which is people changing their minds. Can you think of an example of something that you've changed your mind on, something that you used to believe that you now no longer believe or, you know, something that, uh, is there an example that comes to mind when I ask you the question, you know, is there something that you've changed your mind on? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, marriage. I think, I think when I was growing up, I always thought that I'd get married and then I think in my 20s there was a period as well where it was really meaningful to me as well, uh, particularly, you know, in the lead-up to the fight for same-sex marriage being legalised here in Australia. Like, I think that's probably something that's popped up in my mind a lot. I mean, you know, coming from a Catholic background where that's what we were doing. We were all going through primary school so that we could find a nice boy with a side part and then marry him. And uh, I don't know why he's got a side part. That's my stipulation, not the church's. (laughs) 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 Just to be clear. (laughs) But then, um, yeah, and then in my 20s, I think I went through a period where I was like, yeah, maybe maybe marriage is the thing that I'd I'd like for myself. And then... uh, and now, now I, now I don't think it is. Now I don't think it's something that matters to me. I don't, I, I don't know that it holds any value. And I'm so grateful to everybody that, that fought hammer and tong to, you know, get same-sex marriage over the line for those that it is meaningful to. I mean, it allowed my little sister to get married and that was something very important to her, which made it important to me. But for myself, I'm like, oh, I just don't know if it's, if it's a thing anymore. And that's freeing. That's freed up a lot of money, Will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good to live in a world where you have the 100%. choice, right? Like where it's not somebody else's choice. You can choose uh, not That's to do right. It. That was a good answer. I'm keeping that question. For a second, I was worried that I'm going to have to dump my new question that I quite liked because people were going to have trouble answering it, but you came up with an excellent answer. <laughs> but... You didn't have two, which is unusual for you. That's what I was about to say. I only had the one. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, if I had a magic wand and I could give you any skill in the world, uh, any skill in the world, uh, you don't have to learn how to do it. You just have this skill. What would the skill be that you would desire? And does it just uh, does it have to be something that's tangible in real life, or can it be like a, a magical thing? <laughs> I'm happy for it to be a magical thing. It's a magic wand, so I. Oh, think yeah, of that, course. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy for. You, I'm happy for you to interpret this in ha- in whatever way you would. Okay, so you've got a magic wand, and it can give me any skill in the world. What would it be? Probably the ability to make things easier for people. Very broad. No, that's okay. I like this. This is good. This is like, I mean, look, you know, it's a magic wand. I'm sure it's capable of, you know, these things. But just the idea of like that that's your kind of number one priority. It's not necessarily something that, you know, even you're using for your own sake. You're, you've interpreted it in a way that you just like the capacity to, you know, bring ease to other people's lives. Well, yeah, because it's not it's not purely altruistic, is it? It's not altruistic at all no. if it's something that gives you pleasure, you know, like helping other people, making their lives easier, ma- making their day happier. You know, I mean, I think, I think even when I talk about comedy and the reason that I do it is because I like to make people happy and I like to give them a good time and allow them that space to go and have a laugh and that's what drives me in comedy. Like, that's, there's no altruism in that. Like, I derive great joy from that. So it's just this, you're pushing out joy to receive joy. Everyone's joyous, very joyful occasion. (laughs) Joy, joy, joy. (laughs) And so it's probably the same thing. I mean, I like, yeah, I, I, I like making things easier for people, I think. I don't like seeing people in pain or in struggle, like myself included. Like I, do, I don't like that for anyone. And, and, the, and there's such a big scale to it as well, right? Like there's a huge scale. Like some, but some people feel like the struggles that they're facing are insignificant compared to other people and it's like – but you can still be struggling with something. And if you just had like a little magic wand and, and could just go like, boom, all right, Will, as of today, your boss is no longer a massive dickhead and that would just make your nine to five so much easier every day just because you, like your magic wand can stop your boss being a dickhead. Like, great. How good's that? Mm. That would be good, actually, very good for me because my boss is a massive yeah, dickhead. And I mean that in the nicest way because I'm so Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So is <laughs> <laughs> <So's> mine. <laughs> very impulsive and impatient. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, we have one more question, but before that, let's do the plugs. I'll do the plugs, of course, at the top of the episode as well, uh, in the long ramble that I like to do at the top of the episodes. <laughs> but uh, but give us the plugs. Uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival, obviously, uh, people can come and see you do your, your live stand-up comedy, but also you plug plug everything. Yeah, okay, cool. So, yeah, so my show is called Chuck-a-Sicky, and it's, uh, it's not, not in relation to chucking a sicky. It's just a phrase I really enjoy. And uh, so it's from April 6th to 18. Um, the, the show on the 18th, it's at 6.10pm every night at Comedy Republic, which is at 231 Burke Street in the city here. And it's uh, Melbourne's newest custom-built comedy theatre and it's absolutely beautiful. I'm almost more excited about showing people the venue than my show. And the show on April 18th is Auslan Interpreted and on the 17th there's an extra show at 5pm and that's accessible because 
Uh, the rest of the shows are upstairs. Um, however, the five o'clock show on the 17th will be downstairs, so that will be accessible for people. And uh, I've got a podcast. It's called The Best. It's uh, just very lighthearted. The premise is that it's a response to listicles, that I was just sick of people putting out lists saying these are the top ten of whatever. And so I uh, have these 30-minute episodes each week where I talk about two different topics and at the end I present the objective truths of what are the best of those topics. And the whole premise is that it's not my personal opinions, it's the objective truths, but everyone that listens to it pushes back every week. Uh, I'll let you be, you be the judge. <laughs> and that can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Other than that, uh, I'm, right. I'm at Kirsty Weebeck on all the socials and KirstyWeebeck.com on the World Wide Web. So final question, Kirsty Weebeck, um, is this. I have a time machine. I do not have a time machine for legal reasons, but uh, for the purpose of this question, I have a time machine and I can take you to any point in history, any point in the future. You can go and visit yourself. You can observe something. You can give yourself some advice. You can change something about your life, but you don't have to visit yourself. You can, like I said, you know, you can go to any point in history, any point in the future. I don't really mind. It has to be a return trip. I need the machine back so I can ask uh, the next guest on the uh, podcast uh, about it as well. But where would you like to go? Well, all right. Bearing in mind that you've already said that you'd love it if I came back for a chat down the track. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking, that, all right, there you go. I've got one up my sleeve that I'll tell you about next time. <laughs> um, I reckon I would go back in time to hang out with my nan. And she lived with us for a large chunk of my childhood and she died when I was 14 and she was the best and she used to give me loads of advice and she yeah she was just the best and I'd probably go back and and hang out with her for an afternoon I'd wind her up we were besties but gee I used to wind her up it's funny knowing that now as an adult, like at the time, I don't think I realised it so much, but now as an adult, like when I reflect on like all of the late night chats I used to have with my nan, I'd be like, yeah, we used to really get to a point where I'd wound her up every single time. <laughs> but that was all part of the relationship. So yeah, I reckon I'd go back and hang out with my nan. Ask her some of the things that I'd like to know now that I didn't realise I'd want to know one day when I was 14. Like ask her more about her life and... Yeah, get to know her more. Yeah, because I think, uh, yeah, good a, a good portion of the time was me just being a, a typical teenager or, or young person around her. And now, like now reflecting back, I'm like, oh, she was very, very wise and we had a very wonderful relationship. But it would be ama- amazing to go back and get to know her on a different level that would interest me now as a grown-up. And then I'd give you your time machine back. And then if we had a really good time, I'd be like, hey, Will, I'm still keen to come back for another chat sometime. And then I'd borrow it again the next time and probably go back again. (laughs) What I normally do is I use my time machine to go forward, uh, listen to the second episode we do, decide if it's any good, and then invite you back. (laughs) People don't know this, but this is technically why I need the time machine back. (laughs) I should have known. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, uh, mate, this has been unreal. This has been so good. I really appreciate that you've taken the time to do it. I have had an absolute ball. I've laughed for the last hour and a half. It's been um, so good, so uh, wonderful. Uh, I wish you all the best. I'm, you know, I'm glad that we, uh, you know, are back doing live stand-up comedy, and I hope soon that I'm going to get to sit in an audience uh, watching you do your thing. So, thanks very much for doing the podcast. I super appreciate it. Thanks, Legend. My pleasure. It's been a blast. Yeah.